Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. Happy Pentecost, as we've said. Glad you are here with us. Pentecost is not just one day on the calendar, but it's something that's supposed to be ongoing. The Spirit of God poured out on all flesh, and the church carries the Spirit of God, so we're supposed to be people of Pentecost. You want to be a person of Pentecost? I certainly do. The fresh fire and presence of God. So today, we are in part 15 of our series on Revelation. We're going to be looking at chapter 13, so if you want to look there, you can. And I've mentioned we are going to be stocking some study Bibles in the Resource Center right out here. You can find good books. We've got one commentary that's really accessible on Revelation. We have handouts on spiritual gifts and our vision and values, and I'm actually going to put a few study Bibles back there because I've been encouraging people, bring your Bible. We also have pew Bibles. So we're looking at chapter 13 today, but before we do that, just a reminder that the book of Revelation is a book that fuels our worship and empowers our witness. The book is really about breaking open the scroll, unveiling God's plan for human beings as he establishes his kingdom and leads human history to its consummation in the person of Jesus. That's what the book of Revelation is about. And we said from day one, the book of Revelation, the message is Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. So it's really not about strange figures or creatures or numbers or predicting things. It is an unveiling of the beauty and glory and majesty of God's Messiah, Jesus. And each week we ask a couple of questions. We ask, what did this mean for the first century Christians? We've mentioned before that that's kind of a preterist approach. What did it mean for the first century? But we also ask, what is the Holy Spirit saying to us through this text? More kind of futurist perspective there. So we're going to be doing that quite a bit today. As you're looking there and seeing in Revelation 13, this is about the two beasts of the dragon, the Antichrist and false prophet. So if you've been tuned out, you probably just tuned in. Yes, we're going to sit with this a little bit and look at the Antichrist and false prophet. And I hope that we'll be able to peel back some of the layers of meaning and fulfillments of this. I want to say up front, there's lots of misunderstanding around the Antichrist and the false prophet. You've probably heard, I'm 51 years old, so I've seen about six different Antichrists identified from Gorbachev to Reagan to, I mean, there's just been one after another after another. And what we're going to see today, we're going to look at it, is that there are layers of meaning to this text and multiple fulfillments regarding these two beasts. We'll see that it had a first century understanding, but it also has a future implication. There will be multiple 
antichrists. 1 John 2, 18 says this. You can write it down. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. From this, we know that it is the last hour. So that's the Apostle John addressing the church and saying to them, you've heard that there's an antichrist, a pretender, the false Christ, the false Messiah. He's coming. But then what does he say? Many antichrists have come. And so we're going to look at that in that perspective. We'll see some types of Antichrist as we look at this, and we'll see various fulfillments. But this text is speaking about two beasts. Verses 1 through 10, we'll look at the first beast that comes from the sea, and the second beast comes, verses 11 through 18, from the land. So if you remember, last Sunday we ended with a strange verse break in chapter 12 at verse 12, and it was describing the dragon, Satan, and he was standing on the sand of the seashore about to summon his evil henchmen to continue his war against the saints, against Christians. So here we are now ready to read Revelation 13. Again, I'm going to read the entire thing because there's a blessing in reading and hearing the book of Revelation. So Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered. Let anyone who has an ear listen. If you are to be taken captive, into captivity you go. If you kill with a sword, with a sword you must be killed. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Verse 11, the second beast here. Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, 
whose mortal wound had been healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all. And by the signs that it is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. This is the word of God. And it is (laughs) mind-blowing. So we're looking at the two beasts. The first beast is found in verses 1 through 10. And again, we're looking at this almost like an onion, peeling layers back. So as much as anything this morning, I want to dispel some of the ideas that we've maybe picked up along the way that I think aren't very helpful and kind of point a way forward to understanding a little bit better texts like this. We've been seeing each week that there's an Old Testament background behind every vision because John's mind is permeated with the word of God. So when he's in the spirit and he's in worship, God activates those symbols and pulls them up on the screen of his mind and he has these visions. And part of understanding the visions is to go right into the Old Testament. And so John here is having this vision of two beasts and the background comes right out of Job chapter 40 and 41. There's a sea dragon that Job talks about here. And this dragon wages war with its mouth. And there's also a land beast in Job's writings here that is going to be slain by God with a sword. So we're kind of on our way already seeing, okay, there's Old Testament precedence for this. He's reminding us of that. John's readers, when they heard this, again, very pictorial, very graphic, living images here, some think that he would have been describing in a pictorial way through the vision the way that Roman leaders would actually come to Asia Minor where they were and port at Ephesus and looking at their massive ships and vessels would have been like seeing a beast coming in and there were actually beasts on board who wanted to persecute and kill the Christians. Another key text, you can look at this later, but we've referenced it multiple times, is Daniel 7. The prophet Daniel has some similar visions. And what John is doing here is creatively reflecting on and reworking some of them. It 
speaks of a seven-headed figure. And again, the point is not get lost in the, the numbers and the heads and all, but to realize what's being described here personifies evil kingdoms that hate God and that turn on God's people and cause them to suffer and try to get them to renounce God and Christ. It's also interesting, for the first century mind, the sea represented the nations. And so when the sea is agitated, it means that there's a great stirring. And oftentimes, out of agitated nations, agitated situations, a new movement would emerge. A beast may emerge from that. Some of the characteristics here we see, we heard about ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems. This is similar to last week. We saw the dragon had multiple horns and heads. The point of all of this is it's mimicking Christ. We'll see in chapter 19. We saw in chapter 1, Jesus is the one who has all authority, who wears the crown that God has given him. And so we have these beasts pretending and imitating. It's like a parody. They're trying with all their might to be as powerful as the true Messiah. And so really, this is what it's trying to illustrate here. Yes, they have seven heads. There is kind of a complete power of evil that's been granted to them, a false claim to power and royalty. What's written on the heads? Blasphemous names. So John's vision is signaling here that these are blasphemous people. Some of the Roman emperors, and again, what we'll do, we'll look at how some of this was fulfilled in the first century, maybe even a little bit before, and then we'll see how it sets this trajectory, this pathway for other fulfillments. But around the time of John, who he's describing, really, he's describing the current Roman Empire. That's what he's doing. First and foremost, he's describing this beast as an anti-God, anti-Christian empire that it had developed into. And so he is saying that some of the leaders that you've had to endure, like Augustus, called himself one of the gods. Blasphemy. Nero, who tortured the Christians, we'll talk about him in a little bit, but he actually called himself the savior of the world. This was blasphemy to Jews and Christians. And Domitian, the emperor who was around the time of the writing of Revelation, he actually was addressed as our Lord and our God. For our minds, this may sound strange, but for Christians, first century Christians, this was the way it was. And so the statement, Jesus is Lord, is a political statement. We'll come to that in a few minutes here. Trying to decide if I want to go. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a minute. You can see that intriguing picture there. We'll, we'll come back. All of this is signaling blasphemy. Jesus said in Luke 4, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so his followers in the first century are saying we cannot participate in giving praise to these political leaders they're just men. They're mere mortals. We worship God and serve him only. The point at verse 2, the beast was like a leopard and its feet were like a bear's, etc. The point of this, it's a composite 
of all the empires. Again, the first century fulfillment in Rome, it was the most organized, the most powerful, and becoming the most evil. But friends, what we'll see here in this description, some people, I think, err on the side of saying most of this happened in the first century. It's not true. It's why we ask two questions. What did this mean for first century readers? And it meant a lot. It was written for them. But then there's something in this passage that far outstrips anything that happened in the first century or the following 2,000 years. There is a future beast that will emerge. And so we keep that intention, the already and the not yet. There will be a future antichrist system that will embody all of the other oppressive systems and empires. Who was it that empowered this empire? You look there at verse 2. Verse 3, it's the dragon himself. He is the one empowering this beast. This gets strange, doesn't it? At verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but the wound was healed. Different interpretations on this. One is, perhaps it's a reference to Nero, who committed suicide in 68 AD. But I think it's actually, again, if we're using Scripture to interpret this, think about Genesis 3. The scene, Eden, the serpent, Adam and Eve, and the word of the Lord comes to Eve at verse 15, Genesis 3.15. And some people say this is the first mention of the gospel, the first messianic promise. What's it say at Genesis 3.15? It's a promise that the Messiah, the seed of Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. And so most likely here, there's a biblical and theological understanding here in John's vision. It's already in the might of the empire that he's seeing. He's recognizing that there's a head that's been wounded. Christ has already won the victory. We saw in the last chapter, Revelation 12, 11, they have already overcome the dragon. They've already overcome. Christ has already won the victory. So there's something about this beast that lets you know it's already been mortally wounded by the promised Messiah. Is that beautiful? Christ has won the victory, even though Great suffering will be unleashed. Verse 4 talks about the worship of the beast. The inhabitants of the earth worship the beast and the dragon. So this antichrist figure who's empowered by the dragon is worshipped. Some commentators talk about what's really happening here, friends, and this is super important, is that secular power is being deified or made out to be God. And that is, in fact, the worship of Satan. Just sit with that for a moment. Anytime an empire or a state receives ultimate allegiance from people, it's the worship of Satan. That's sobering. Anytime. 
whether it's the ancient Assyrian Empire, Babylon, Rome, any time that human beings look to secular power and give it that kind of adoration and respect and give themselves wholeheartedly to it, it's the worship of Satan. It's humanism at its purest form. This week, while I was thinking about this, I was hearing people talk about these YouTube videos. It's becoming a whole kind of weird subgenre where people are taking little mice and putting them in a cage with deadly serpents. And a lot of them are scientists and they're analyzing the behavior of mice. And this one gentleman was talking about how the mice would literally walk right up to the serpent who was baring its fangs and sniff the fangs and kiss and nibble on the fangs. And these people that are watching are saying, wow, mice are mammals just like us. <laughs> we share some of the characteristics of mice. And this is one reason why different labs and pharmaceutical companies would test their drugs on mice because we share some brain processes and behaviors. But friends, this text urges us to wake up. Wake up spiritually. To not naively trust any secular state, including ours. Yes, we can love and appreciate our country, be patriotic as Christians, we can pray for our leaders, as Scripture says, but as the Scriptures teach us, including this passage right here, secular authorities can come under the influence of destructive spiritual forces. So discern, be aware, be awake as vigilant soldiers of Jesus. We've mentioned a couple times now, when we see signs or evil fruit, we should wake up and be aware. We should look at our country, the leadership of our country, and again, I've already said this is not partisan statements, this is biblical statements I'm making here. Doesn't matter if it's Republican, Independent, Democratic, I've said that over and over again. What I'm inviting us to do is be led by the teaching of the scriptures and be challenged in new ways because some of us are blindfolded. I've got friends that are just blindly following the state. Whether that be Trump or Biden, there's a devotion, an allegiance that's there and it's not Christian. Are you with me? And so I'm inviting us, because of texts like this, wake up. If your allegiance is to a political leader or a political system, you are kissing the fangs. Revelation 9, 20 to 21 talked about some, some of the things that we look for in evil empires, beastly empires. And I mentioned these, the worship of demons and idols. Where you see that, you see the beast. Murderers, including infanticide, the killing of babies, a second mark. Thirdly, sorceries. I mentioned the Greek word was pharmakia. 
the use of chemicals to seduce people into illusions and addictions. Any of these sound familiar? Fourthly, fornication, the Greek word pornea, the selling or surrendering of one's sexual purity. And finally, theft. And so what the text helps us do here is develop a filter, a grid, a lens through which we as Christians can analyze what's going on, whether it's our country or another state or empire. The Lord equips us to have Holy Spirit biblical discernment. And this is one of those texts. And I know it should make all of us uncomfortable. But we are citizens of God's kingdom, first and foremost. And then we're citizens of our country. Are you with me on that? I am, I am saying, like the scriptures teach, we pray for our leaders. We're faithful. We've got a healthy biblical patriotism. We've got people that have served in the military. But at the same time, we have to have Holy Spirit sharp eyes of discernment. Where is your ultimate allegiance? That's what the text is saying. So it's worshiped here. Verses 5 through 9 talk about, this is interesting, talks about the activities that are allowed. Look at verse 5. The beast was given. It says this five times in the passage. The beast was given and was allowed. So God remains sovereign and allows these things happen for a limited time. Friends, Satan the dragon, the beast, the antichrist, the false prophet, they are pawns in God's hands. They are instruments. And that opens up all kinds of questions. I know the problem of evil, but in the end, the text is saying evil is limited. God is on the throne. Christ is on the throne, and he rules and reigns over these beasts. Amen? So like the little horn in Daniel 7, this beast is speaking boastfully, speaking out against the Most High and magnifying himself above every god. Again, this is humanism in its purest form. We are God. We don't need God. We don't need salvation. This is the spirit of what's happening here. I want to put this slide up, then I'm actually going to pause for a moment let you take a breather, but if you'll put that series of Antichrist back up there for me. And again, you can access these later. But what I did, because we're seeing here there's first century fulfillments, right? But then there are Antichrists that appear throughout history. And in the end of the end, one Antichrist figure will appear and a false prophet, and it will sweep up together the evil of the preceding ones. But up here, I've picked out, what do I have, seven of those. I've got three ancient. The one on the far left there is Antiochus IV. About 200 years before Christ, he persecuted the Jewish people with great zeal. And then next to him is Nero. He died in 68 this dude was vicious. He was an antichrist figure, one of the top five most evil in human history. 
He would feed Christians to the lions as entertainment. He would create human torches out of Christians. He would pour oil and pitch on them and light his garden with Christians in order to scare others. He was wicked. He was an antichrist type. The one next to him with the interesting hairdo, if you can see it there, kind of a quaff there, antichrist hair. <laughs> Domitian, he died in 96 AD. He was the one that the first century church was facing when Revelation was written. And so he was ramping up again the persecution of Christians. And he was forcing them, all the citizens of Rome, to call him my Lord and my God. And the Christians refused. These other four, a little more familiar to us, Hitler in the 30s and 40s killed six million Jewish people, millions of others, including his own fellow Germans. That's Lenin next to Hitler there, 1918, killed at least 200,000 of his own in red terror, responsible for the killing of tens of thousands of more. Stalin in the 1930s, 20 million at least. And then the Antichrist of all Antichrists is Mao Zedong, the guy on the upper right, 45 million responsible. Friends, these are antichrists. These are people that if you lived in that era, you would have said the end is probably near. <laughs> These people are wicked, anti-Christian, putting themselves in the place of God, blasphemous, doing everything they can do to eradicate Christianity. And you know what? All of them failed. All of them failed. We could actually say these are agents of revival. That's not in my notes. When they bring the hammer down on the church, the fire spreads every single time. And so as we look in the future, I'm not telling you today that I know who the Antichrist is, nor should you be thinking that. But when that figure comes, there will be unprecedented revival. The power of the Holy Spirit will be poured out. These people are faking and imitating, parodying Christ. And Christ will not sit back and let them perform false signs and wonders and seek to eradicate his people. The gospel will spread mightily to the ends of the earth. So we can look at these past antichrists, future antichrists, because they've already come and they're coming, and we can say, Jesus is Lord. Amen? Wow, to compress 18 verses as we look at this into a few minutes, pretty challenging. But I hope that this is helping to clarify a little bit. Antichrists have come and they will come and there will be one. And I think the way that you can identify, whether you're alive or you're in heaven and the cloud of witnesses watching, is you'll know it's the final one when Jesus comes back and decimates him with the word of his mouth. That's how you'll know. Until then, only the Father knows. Christ doesn't know, Satan doesn't know, his minions don't know, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Verses seven and following here. We're actually gonna end right where we should. There's war against the saints and universal worship. This is another mimicry or parody of what's true We've seen in earlier places that 
People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, Revelation 7, worship before the throne. They worship God and his Messiah. And this is a parody of that. The Antichrist and his false prophet are seeking to also have universal worship. Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, 24, the coming of false Christs who display signs and wonders might be able to deceive the elect if that were possible. But those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, the text says here, are ultimately safe. Christians have faced the killing of the body, but ultimately their protection is the salvation and preservation of their soul. Right? Christ said that. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the Lord of your soul who gives you eternal destiny. So friends, we'll see here that the believers paid a great price. And therefore, verses 9 and 10, what's it say? These are rather tricky here, these verses, but it's basically saying, listen up. If you are to be taken captive, you will be taken captive. If you stand up to the beast, the beast is ready to throw you in prison. The second part of that, if you kill with a sword, with a sword you must be killed. Some people have said that that pertains to that persecutors, that if you inflict pain through the sword on Christians, then it's going to come back at you. I'm not sure it's a difficult passage, but I think the passage is just saying to the Christians in the first century who are facing the demonized demission You may go to prison. You may lose your life. But remember that you belong to Jesus, the lamb who was slain, and your name is recorded in his book for all time. Very quickly here, how about we end with the mark of the beast? We doing okay? The mark of the beast in three minutes. Can you maybe give me an extra couple minutes? Is that okay? All right. Again, difficult to compress this. But I just want to clarify some things. Verses 11 through 18, this is the second beast. Some similarities, some overlap. The first beast is the Roman state embodying evil. And this second beast here, we'll learn later in chapter 16, 19, and 20, this is the false prophet. So for, listen up for a moment here, for the first century, the first beast is the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor. The second beast is what was called the imperial cult. It was the religious leaders who pointed to the emperor and the empire and said, worship it. It's God. That's the essence of the false prophet, right? And this is a description of the false prophet here. He mimics, the false prophet mimics what we saw in chapter 11, the two witnesses that performed miracles. So what we're seeing here is a false Elijah that prepares the way for a false Messiah. One commentator says that. Can't go into it, but in the ancient world, you see these elements here about the statue coming to life and all of it may have been magic, may have been sorcery, it may have been trickery. 
in the ancient world, they actually would use statues. Sometimes they would have a person hidden in the statue who would be speaking out with kind of a primitive megaphone speaking out. Sometimes they had mastered ventriloquism so they could make idols speak. Someone like Simon in uh, Acts 8, he's a magician. He was known for animating objects and idols, so we don't really know the details of it. We just know that it's wicked trickery. All right, the mark of the beast here. Verse 16 and following. We'll end with this. This is the Antichrist's minister of propaganda, and he is requiring the mark of the beast on the right hand and the forehead. Why is it the right hand? Why is it the forehead? Definitely symbolizing that the emperor and the empire have their ideology deeply embedded in the minds of people. So they're thinking the kind of thoughts that they want them to think and they're acting the way through their right hand according to that ideology. All kinds of things here that could have inspired this. One is the branding of slaves or soldiers in the first century in ancient Rome. They were loyal followers or viewed as property. And so what's being said here is the mark of the beast means you belong to the beast. You belong to the dragon. You will do the will as a faithful follower of the dragon and the beast. You've given yourself to the empire, to the state. It may also be it's kind of a mockery of a Jewish phylactery. Anyone know what a phylactery is? It's the Torah, pieces of the Torah that are in little leather boxes, and they would strap them on their heads. Deuteronomy 8 talks about this and Deuteronomy 6, and they would strap on pieces of the Torah to keep the Torah on their mind at all times, and then they would strap it on their left arm to signify that everything that they did was permeated with the presence of God and the Torah, the law of God. And so it could be a mockery of that, the mark of the beast. And the number is 666. Goodness gracious, lots of books have been written about this. And we still don't know the meaning of it. There's a couple of understandings of this. And one is that it was a numerical way of saying emperor and Nero. That if you take letters in the ancient world, each letter had a numerical equivalent to it. So for us, it would be A is one, B is two. So if you spell out Nero Caesar, it calculates to this. So it's gematria. That may be it. We don't know. But I think one way of looking at it is it's the number of man. God created man on the sixth day. And on the seventh day, he rested. So we've seen seven is the number of God. Well, this is the epitome of the human number. It is six, six, six. It's human beings trying with all their might to measure up to the perfection and fullness of God without God. And so it really is, a, just like we've heard, holy, 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 666 preaches this. Failure, failure, failure apart from God. And the day may come, we don't know. Amanda was asking me about this. Is this literal or symbolic? We know it's symbolic because in Revelation 9, the believers are marked, right? 
marked on their forehead with the name of God, and that's symbolic and metaphorical. Could it be in the last days that there is a literal mark on people so that they can buy and sell? Possibly. We don't know. But the scriptures call us to seek the Lord in prayer, to seek the truth of scripture, to be wise, to be understanding. Amen? Thank you. That was a few minutes over. Why don't we stand? Friends, the essence of what we were looking at here is Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the true Messiah. And he's called his church to point to him and to share the gospel, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom. Satan is a pretender. All he can do is imitate and mimic. But I think like never before in 2021, we need Holy Spirit discernment and wisdom. And so I hope that the book of Revelation is engendering some of that in you and that you're on your knees before God. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me discernment. Take my allegiance from any human being, any political figure, any religious figure for that matter, and rivet it on the person of Jesus because he alone is Lord. And may we love him and be so deeply secure in his love that we can face anything. If we face suffering and persecution, the Father loves us. We're his beloved bride. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And I ask today for a fresh empowerment as we move forward that you would give us the mind of Christ and that you would give us fiery devotion to Jesus. And why don't we just say together in a moment here, I'm going to say it, Jesus is Lord. One, two, three. Jesus is Lord. It was a political statement then. It's a political statement now. He's our Lord. He's our King. He is our Emperor and President.